One other announcement, and that is that uh, in a couple of weeks, either on Thursday, Friday night, or Saturday morning, we're not sure when just yet, uh, there are three ladies who are going to be up here from Baraka, and all three of them had been involved in the uh, training aids and prep school departments down there, which is their Sunday school department, for many years, and uh, they're all quite talented. Uh, a couple of them have known me since, well, maybe you shouldn't come. <laughs> but we have, uh, uh, they are going to be here, and they're going to meet with uh, all the teachers and give a lot of ideas and thoughts, and you can interact with them and ask questions. It's also a good thing for you as parents. I know some of you are very actively involved with trying to teach some doctrine to your kids at home, and so that would be a good thing for you to come to. You could probably get some good ideas. But if you've ever thought about or considered teaching downstairs in Sunday school, this is something that you should uh, plan on attending. So we need to have more of these kinds of things where we're working with the teachers and we, and that's one of the most important things that we do as a congregation is provide for the biblical instruction of the children in the congregation to make sure that they uh, get pointed in the right direction and really understand the word and that they can learn all the concepts and vocabulary so that they reach the right age. They are prepared to uh, come upstairs and understand what's going on. So... Uh, as we get a date finalized on that, then uh, we will let you know. Al? No, it's, it's going to be around the either 27th, 28th, 29th of, uh, of July. One of those two or three nights. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. I mean, he who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but uh, according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We always have a few moments of silent prayer, so that if you need to use 1 John 1.9, you have that opportunity, and then we open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers to study your word. Father, our subject is the greatest of all subjects, which is the uh, work that took place during that time on the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins as our spiritual substitute. Father, as we study these things, we pray that we might come to a greater understanding of all that you did in working out our salvation that it is indeed a great salvation that has provided everything we will ever need and that we should therefore not treat it lightly. Now, Father, we pray that we might be challenged as we understand the depths of your love and the incomprehensibility of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the 18th chapter of John. The 18th chapter of John, and if John, speaking of John, if he will stop the fan from blowing, then I will be able to stay on the page. John chapter 18. Now, we must remind ourselves a little bit about how John writes. 
John was an old man by the time he wrote this gospel. He was probably in his 90s. He had thought for approximately 50 or 60 years about the things that had occurred during the time that he was with our Lord, during those three years that he was with the Lord up to and involving the time of the cross. He was very, as we'll see in this passage, he was intimately involved in the events surrounding the arrest and the trials of Christ. He was a witness to these things. And over the years, he had reflected upon what had taken place. And, and I think that, that he had, in his thinking, come to understand a lot of things that were going on in God's plan and the outworking of all of the details, that in the sovereignty of God, he was working through many different details and orchestrating the events so that everything was accomplished the way that, God ha- that he had planned it. And as John writes, he is writing to an audience that he assumes is familiar with the events in the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called that because they are very similar, almost synonymous. That's where we get the term synoptic. They're very similar in their approach and description of the life of Christ. And so John builds on that. He adds details that aren't in the other Gospels. And John is also reflecting more theologically on what was going on. And he is not writing simply to inform us of events that transpired, but wants us to see in the way he organizes those events, the doctrinal principles that are being illustrated. Now, last time we saw looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 18 when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And despite the fact that this is an extremely, extremely serious situation and uh, many things happen there that the Lord is in control of, and we saw some the uh, manifestation of His power and glory when the soldiers came and they... Uh, he comes, steps out from the trees and leaves his disciples behind him and says, Whom do you seek? His demonstration of his courage, his character, his role as the protector of the disciples. But there is also in John's writing something humorous and ironic about what is taking place. Because here we see a cohort, cohort of Roman soldiers, some of the top soldiers in the Roman Empire were stationed at the uh, Antonio Fortress of Antonio or the Mark Antony Barracks there in Jerusalem because it was such a, uh, a, a hot area in the empire. There was so much insurrection and, and uh, there were many different groups that were seeking to rebel against Rome that the, um, uh, they, they stationed their top troops there. And here you have a cohort of approximately 600 Roman soldiers and their officer corps coming out to arrest Jesus, accompanied by probably 150, 200 temple police along with Pharisees. And they're all marching out to arrest this one man, this carpenter from Nazareth, who is camped out in the trees with 11 of his disciples. They don't, of course, from their perspective, know what to expect. There's so many groups of insurrectionists in, in uh, Judea at that time that they do think that the possibility they might be ambushed. That's one reason they had so many. But he, it is humorous to think that they had a, six, 800 armed soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. They have their swords. They have clubs. They're marching with torches and lanterns. It's uh, approximately 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and you can just imagine as you hear this group moving along, they would, of course, not be silent. You can hear all their accoutrements banging and clanking together as they seek to move over the uneven terrain, coming up to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And Jesus comes out, and He speaks to them. And we saw last time the tremendous drama that takes place here when they when He calmly ask, whom do you seek, in verse 4, and they answer, Jesus the Nazarene, and he responds with a voice of divine authority, pronouncing the divine name in Greek, he says, I am. And the voice and the power, because he wants it to be clear that, that it's not, he's not 
being arrested because they're more powerful. And at the sound of his voice, they all fall down. I mean, they're just knocking each other down. They fall on their backs. Their shields are going one way. Swords are going another way. They're dropping their torches and their lanterns. And it's just a, a, a absolute confusion would reign for at least five minutes. When you have 800 people and they all fall down on their rears, you can imagine the, the confusion that has ensued there. And here they're all knocked down. Then they get up and they have to find their all their equipment and get their shield back on and get their pick up their sword and grab their uh, torches and la- and relight everything and finally they get it all back together and Jesus again says whom do you seek and they're acting desperately to, as if nothing had happened well we didn't just fall down he didn't just knock us down you know and he exhibits his authority and his power as the God of the universe by the utterance of his name and he's knocked them all down and then we really get into the humor of the situation in verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and just to make sure they had him under their control, they bound him. They tied his hands behind his back. Now, he didn't knock them down with his hands. He just spoke. I mean, this is just, there's tremendous humor here in man's attempt to confine the omnipotent God of the universe. And so the Roman cohort and the commander, the officers of the Jews, arrest, arrested Jesus and they bound him. Now, in these verses, John has organized his material like a fine drama. You could picture it as a stage drama where there are two different scenes working together, sort of like, musically you would call it point and counterpoint, where they, they are playing off of one another. On the one side, you see the spotlight on Jesus. And there are two or three verses where you see Jesus arrested and taken into Annas, the uh, high priest who is going to interrogate him. And we get that introduction and the scene freezes. The lights go out. Spotlight comes on to the other side of the stage and we see what's taking place with Peter in the courtyard and Peter's denial. And then the spotlight goes off, the stage goes dark on that side and the spotlight comes back on Jesus. And you see Jesus answering the questions and then that scene stops and freezes and goes dark and it transfers back to to Peter. John wants us to see something in all of this. He is playing this back and forth for a purpose. If we were writing, we would perhaps go through one complete scene and talk about Jesus and what went on in, the, in, the, uh, in his interrogation and then shift over. And this is what takes place in the other synoptics. But John doesn't handle the situation like that. He plays them back and forth in order to illustrate something. And we must ask, what is it that John and the Holy Spirit want us to see here? On the one hand... We see Peter outside on the temple grounds. He's disguised, hoping against hope that that no one will recognize him as a follower of the Lord and also hoping that somehow he'll find out what has happened to his Lord and, and somehow be able to help him. On the other side, we see the Lord courageously facing his accusers and answering their questions. Together, these scenes are going to emphasize for us the majesty of God's gracious provision of salvation on the one hand and the human failure to solve man's problems, to the man's total failure on the other side. On one side we see God's impersonal love in contrast to man's unworthiness. We see man's lack of dependability and his total failure in being able to maintain any relationship with God on his own terms. On the one side we see the faithfulness of God, and on the other side we see the fickleness of man. On one side we see the stability of divine love, and on the other side we see the complete rejection on this part of God on the part of man. And together for us they portray the riches of God's grace and what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. 
Remember, that's the theme of this whole section of John, starting in John 15 in the Upper Room Discourse, when Jesus told his disciples, Love one another as I have loved you. And we have seen how the words for love are used many times in that section from John 15 through John 17. They're rarely used before John 15. They are used, I mean, before John 13. From John 13 through John 17, they are used many times, and then they're not used again until the very end of the book in John chapter 21. What is happening in this section is that Jesus said two things in that command, love one another. And he explained how they would do that and what that would be like in the upper room discourse. And the model, the pattern for the kind of love, the unique Christian love that we are to have in the body of Christ for one another is based on the kind of love Christ has for us. We are all expected to demonstrate that kind of love. And so the pattern is set between chapters 18 and chapter 20. That's where Christ demonstrates the, as I have loved you. And so what we see here is the demonstration of Christ's impersonal, unconditional love for Peter and Peter's unfaithfulness and rejection of the Lord. And the Lord continues to love him despite Peter's abandonment of the Lord. You see, that's the thrust of the whole gospel, is that man has rejected God, but God loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is not a love based on the fact that God saw something valuable, meritorious, or worthy in man. God did not. Scripture says God demonstrated His love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. And the point is that to understand this kind of love, what we call unconditional love or impersonal love, is to understand how we are to relate to one another. The reason we call it impersonal love is because it doesn't necessitate a personal knowledge or relationship with the object. We can exercise this love towards someone whom we do not know and someone with whom we do not have a relationship. We do not have to have that personal contact. We call it unconditional love because it is not based on any conditions in the object of love. You see, whenever you say, I love you, or you are going to love someone, in personal love, that is based on something that you find attractive, valuable, or meaningful in the object of love. But in impersonal love, it's not based on something attractive in the object of love. In fact, that person may be completely obnoxious and antagonistic to you. It's based upon the character of God and understanding that, and having that character being uh, developed in our own soul. That's why when Paul is reiterating this command in Galatians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, he comes along and stops for a minute and shows the contrast between walking by the Spirit and walking according to the sin nature. And then he shows that the walk by the Holy Spirit is the walk that produces the love, which is the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's why he puts love first of all there. It is this kind of impersonal love that is to be the foundation of personal love. If there is no ability to exhibit impersonal love in your soul, then your personal love is meaningless. In fact, you're dangerous if you don't have impersonal love because your, your personal love without the foundation of impersonal love is nothing but fickleness and instability based upon how somebody else is responding or reacting or behaving towards you. And when that's good and pleasing to you, you like them and you love them. And when they're not pleasing to you or they do something you don't like, then you're mad at them and you treat them in improper ways. And that's what happens when you don't understand real love. And that is why there's so many problems in the in. Uh, America today in terms of relationships and in terms of marriages is because when 99.9% of the people say, I love you, what they're really saying is, you make me feel good and I'm going to give you the opportunity to make me feel good for the rest of your life. And that's what happens when they're standing down in front of the preacher getting married 
and they're making their vows, the hidden text, the subtext is, is I've really had a good time with you and you've made me feel special and important and uh, you've given me a lot of uh, good times and I'm going to uh, give you the opportunity to do that for the rest of our lives. And if you don't, well, I'm out of here and I'm going to find somebody else who will. Now that's what most people are really saying even though they don't have the honesty or objectivity to say that. And that's why two, three, four years down the road, when the good times are over with and that emotional high of the romantic love disappears, then all of a sudden the two people look at each other and go, who are you? I don't like you. I'm going to find somebody else. And off they go. And so we have a high divorce rate because we don't have an understanding of impersonal love which is based on character and virtue in the soul which can only come from Bible doctrine in the soul energized by a walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So this is what John wants us to notice here. We're going to look at the historical details. We're going to look at the events because they help us understand the dynamics leading up to the cross. But there's something below that, beneath that, something that that wraps up this whole context that John wants us to pay attention to, and that is the demonstration of Christ's impersonal love despite human fickleness. Now we read in, in verse 13 that after they arrested Jesus and they tied his hands behind him and they led him off, they first took him to Annas. To Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, there are six trials of Jesus. There aren't two. And none of the Gospels deal with all of them in the same place. The, the first three trials can be uh, organized together as the religious trials. These are the trials before the Jews and focuses on Jesus, the charge against Jesus of blasphemy, which was a capital crime under Jewish law. It was supposed to be punished, of course, by stoning. That's how it was outlined in the Mosaic Law. But because they were under the control and uh, domination of Rome, the Jews were unable to give a capital uh, sentence. They could not uh, convict someone of a capital crime and execute them. They had to get permission from the Romans in order to do that. So their first three trials are the religious trials. There is a beginning, it's not really a formal trial as such, it's more of an interrogation and arraignment, and that is before the former high priest who still has all the power, and that is a man named Annas. That's given in John 18:12 through 14. From Annas, Jesus is taken... And it's in the same house, by the way, because Annas is really the power behind all of the high priests. He's, he's the great political religious crime boss of, of, uh, of, Israel, of Judea at this time. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now the serving or acting high priest because Annas has paid enormous amounts of money to keep his kin in that, in that position. The trial of Caiaphas is expounded on in Matthew 26, 57 to 68. And then there is a trial before the entire Sanhedrin in Matthew 27, 1 and 2. That comprises the three religious trials. Then there are three criminal trials, which we probably won't get to until next time. That is once before Pilate in John 18, 28 through 30. And then before Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, who happens to be in, in uh, Judea at the time. This is given, explained to us in detail by Luke in chapter 23, 6 through 12. And then Herod doesn't want to take responsibility for this, so he uh, sends, him back to, sends Jesus back to Pilate in John 18, 39 through 19, 6. So it is here that we see what is taking place in, uh, among the Jewish leaders. Now, the interesting thing that we see is the blindness of everyone here, from the soldiers who have just been uh, impressed with the power of Jesus Christ and they just act as if they didn't see anything, to the religious leaders who are ignorant of who He is and, and ignore all of the miracles and everything else, that they are blinded. This is the function of Satan in the cosmic system, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 states, in whose case the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. And this is exactly what we see here. Here they have the light of the world in their presence, and they don't see it. Now, someone asked me recently that how is it that, the, that Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving? Does he somehow reach in and put blinders on their mentality? No, that's not how it works, because the, each individual still has volition. What happens is that he utilizes the sin, appeals to human arrogance and the sin nature in combination with the various philosophies and religions of the earth to um, use all of those thought systems to blind men to the truth. It is self, that men are in arrogance and in self-deception, and so they, as Roman, Paul says in Romans 1, are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what gives them the rationale to do that is the cosmic system, the thought system that Satan has developed, and whether it's religious systems, philosophical systems, or whatever the rationale or self-justification might be, it is there so that men can grab hold of that and, and somehow justify their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, what we see when Jesus is bound and taken to uh, Annas is a fulfillment of what is called typical prophecy. There are two types of prophecy in the Scriptures. First of all, there is predictive prophecy. This would be a passage such as Matthew 5.2, which states that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. Out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, will come the Messiah. So that's a specific statement, and that is called predictive prophecy. The second, second category of prophecy is based on typology. Now, the word type, the English word type, means a, an example. This is one of its meanings, and it comes from the Greek word tupos. T-U-P-O-S, and it means an example or a, a, a physical representation. For example, the Passover lamb is a lamb without spot or blemish. It is, it is a typological prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture that shows what the Lord will be, and He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when I talk about typical prophecy, I'm talking about a prophecy that involves a picture or a representation of the work of Christ when He comes. For example, in Psalm 118.27 we read, The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. See, the sacrifice was bound. Jesus is bound. This is a portrayal of the fact that that the ultimate sacrifice would be bound when taken to the cross. Genesis 22.9 gives us another example of this. Then when, when Isaac is going to be offered by Abraham to God in preparation, of course, God provided a substitute, which is a picture of the substitutionary work of Christ. But before Abraham knew God would provide that substitute, or before God had provided that substitute, we read in verse 9, Then they came, that is, Abraham and Isaac, came to the place on Mount Moriah, the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, it's at that moment that he pulls out the knife and gets ready to sacrifice Isaac, and the Lord stops him, and there's a ram caught in the bushes, and a picture of the fact that God is the one who provides the sacrifice in our place. But his being bound is a typical prophecy, a type of the way in which Christ would be taken to the cross, and that is based upon... These verses, it's a typical prophecy or a picture of his being bound. So they take Jesus then to Annas. They take him there first. Now, there's a bit of a problem here because, uh, or a conflict in in this, this verses, because Annas is not really the high priest. Now, we notice here in verse 13, it says, They led him to Annas first, for he was father in law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. Caiaphas is the one who's high priest. 
And then we skip down and we read about the interrogation starting in verse 19. The high priest, therefore, questioned Jesus. Now, there are some that come along and say, well, the high priest is Caiaphas, it's not Annas. So this interrogation in verses 19 down through 23 must be the, the same trial as the one before Caiaphas mentioned over in Matthew. The problem with that is, take a look at verse 24. Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas. So at the conclusion of this interrogation, Annas is going to send Jesus to Caiaphas. Annas is called the high priest in a couple of other different passages of Scripture, and he is called that because of his past position as the high priest. He was, a few points on Annas, he was a appointed high priest. Now, under the Mosaic law, a high priest is appointed for life. It doesn't come with a term like president or congressman. It is a, a position appointed for life if he is a descendant of Aaron. And for all that we know, Annas was very possibly and probably a descendant of Aaron. But Annas had become too powerful so that Rome pressured him to step down. He had been appointed high priest by Quirinius in A.D. 6 and was deposed by Valerius Gratus in A.D. 15. So he served actively as high priest for 19 years, but he had amassed such great political power in Jerusalem that the Romans did not want him to continue in that position, so they had him step down. He is also called high priest in Luke 3.2 and Acts 4.6, even though from Acts, I mean from A.D. 15 on, he no longer had that as his official title. But under Mosaic law, the Jews would still think of him as the high priest. Now, to show his power and his wealth, and he was probably the wealthiest person in Judea, and it was all amassed through his crooked deals. He had his fingers in a number of different pies. So he, from his wealth, he had bought the title of high priest for five of his sons between, uh, between the time he stepped down in A.D. 15 up through almost 40 A.D. Five of his sons, Eleazar, Jonathan, Theophilus, Matthias, and Ananus, one grandson, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, all served as high priest. So he made sure it was kept in the, in the family. And what we discover is by this time the office of high priest and the function of the, at least the upper levels of the priesthood were the most corrupt, crooked, illegal operation in Judea. Evil men controlled it and they bought and sold influence everywhere. It was based on a bribery system. Because of his effective power and his corruption, he was able to control all the crime that went on in Judea. He also controlled the concessions for the, sac- for the sacrifices in the temple. He was the one who made, gave people the license to be able to open a booth out in the courtyard of the Gentiles and to sell the, the doves and the other animals that were used in the, in the temple sacrifices. He arranged it so that no one coming in could bring their own uh, sacrificial animal. If they did, it was either found to be unworthy or it was, they had to pay a large amount of money in order to have the privilege of sacrificing their own animal, which they brought with them. He usually, according to the records, the, uh, <clears throat> they usually sold the sacrifices at about five times market value. And when Jews came from other parts of the empire and they had different types of money and they had to exchange their They couldn't buy their sacrifices with anything other than local Jewish currency. So in order to exchange their currency for local currency, he charged about a 200% exchange rate so that he guaranteed a good profit for those people who were the money changers in the temple. Now you remember that when Jesus began his ministry, the first thing he did back in John chapter 2 was to go into the courtyard of the Gentiles in the temple and to completely clean it out from all these crooks. This made him very popular because the people realized the corruption that took place and how this was wrong, but of course it angered Annas and immediately made Annas Jesus' enemy. And 
when Jesus returned to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, just after the triumphal entry, the first thing he did at that point was to go into the temple and clean it out again and to take all the money changers and all the sacrifices. He overturned their tables. He bodily grabbed these men by their clothes and hauled them out and threw them out the door, which gives us a picture of Jesus as a very strong, powerful person in his humanity. He was able to to do this and wrestle these men out of the temple and to clean it out. So this, of course, angered Annas. Now, Annas hated Jesus just about as much as the Jews hated Annas. In the Talmud it is written, Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to their serpent's hiss! They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple, and their servants beat the people with staves. That's a tragic picture of the corruption of the priesthood by this time in Israel's history. So these are the men before whom Jesus is brought for the trial. Now the trial itself is entirely illegal according to Jewish law, but they're not concerned with legality at this point. They're concerned with with really saving their little power base. Remember it is Caiaphas who said, as it's pointed out by by John here in verse the second half of verse fourteen, that that he advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. The reason it's expedient was because Caiaphas is afraid that with Jesus' popularity, the Romans are going to come in and take over and clean house, and he and Annas are going to lose their sweet little corruption deal, and they are going to end up losing all of their wealth. So in sort of a double irony... It is Caiaphas, the unbeliever, who announces a prophecy concerning the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The irony is that, that Caiaphas is afraid that if Jesus is allowed to fulfill his mission, that the Jews will be destroyed. And the reality is, if Jesus had fulfilled his mission as the king of the Jews, he would have still gone to the cross, still, in some sense, had to die for our sins, but he would have brought true freedom from Rome in the process. So there's a tremendous amount of of, uh, subtlety and humor underlying the text here as we read this. Now let's look at the the trials. As we examine what the scriptures, or what the Mishnah says about the way the Jews were to conduct a trial, a capital trial could not occur under darkness. Now, if it was a civil trial, they could meet at night, but if it is a capital trial, that is, if the criminal is going to be subject to a capital penalty, capital punishment and death, then that trial had to be conducted during daylight hours. Of course, they convened this first arraignment about two in the morning, and we understand from from the notation about the cock crowing and Peter's denial, and at this time of the year... Uh, a cock crows in Jerusalem about 3 o'clock in the morning. So this is long before dawn, and it is all under the cover of darkness in violation of the law. A guilty verdict in a capital trial had to be given the following day. They could not meet one day in the morning and then return a guilty verdict that afternoon. If it was innocent, they could return an innocent verdict the same day, but not a guilty verdict. And since the Jewish day goes from sundown to sundown, they are meeting in the morning at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they are giving the verdict during the same, same day in violation of uh, rabbinical law. Third, a capital trial could not be held on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. A capital trial could not be held on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day, and of course this is on the eve of the Passover. So the reason they did that, they had that law so that you wouldn't rush to judgment. Fourth, the accused had to be confronted with at least two witnesses whose testimony agreed. And from Matthew's account, we see that when Jesus is brought before Caiaphas, they brought in all kinds of witnesses, and nobody could agree on the same story. So finally... Caiaphas broke down and he says, they say that you are the king of the Jews. What do you say? And that violates the next point 
are a point that uh, the witness could not incriminate himself. Uh, fifth point, trials were to take place only in the regular meeting place of the Sanhedrin, not in the palace of the high priest. It had to take place in the regular meeting place of the Sanhedrin, and at least 23 members of the Sanhedrin had to be present. In a capital trial, the accused had to be presumed innocent, and then the eighth point of violation In a capital trial, the accused could not be a witness against himself. So these are just eight ways in which the trials violated rabbinical procedures. Some have suggested as many as 25. I think that's pushing it. But the point is well established that the trials that condemned Jesus were not according to rabbinical law. And thus, the Jewish phase was completely illegal. Now we read that they led him first to Annas. For he's father-in-law of Caiaphas, high priest that year. Caiaphas was actually high priest from about 25 A.D. to 36 A.D. for a period of 11 years during the entire time of Pontius Pilate's uh, procuratorship or his during that administration. Caiaphas himself is the paragon of political expediency. And I think if he were alive today, he would probably be the master of uh, policy by poll. We won't make any application on that. He was willing to do whatever it took to keep himself in power the longest. But his political machinations actually proved to be his defeat. Now in verse 15, the scene shifts from inside the palace of the high priest. And both Caiaphas and Annas lived in that palace, so both the initial arraignment, and then when the, the second trial before Caiaphas takes place within the same building. Now, in a Jewish house, at this time, what you have is your outer wall. You go through the opening gate. Inside's a courtyard, and surrounding that courtyard may be two or three buildings or living quarters, where, one where the servants live and one where the family lives. And in this case, because it's the, the home of the high priest, there was probably one dwelling for Annas and his family and another for Caiaphas. So the scene shifts over to shifts over to Peter outside. Now we're told, and Peter was following Jesus. Now the verb here is the imperfect active indicative of akalutheo. I think there's a little tongue-in-cheek humor here because that's the word that Jesus used when he called the disciples. He was said, "Are you willing to follow me?" And so I think John is using this word here to emphasize not only the fact that they were uh, physically following Jesus, but a little tongue-in-cheek humor that Peter was a follower, a disciple of Jesus, and that's what he is getting ready to deny. So once again, we see how, how uh, John is the master of the double entendre here and indicates more than one thing by the words he uses. Simon Peter was following Jesus. Imperfect tense means that this is continuous action in past time, and he is in the process of following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, of course, this unnamed disciple it would be no other, none other than John himself. This is his typical uh, way of expressing who he is. He just leaves himself unnamed. He's another disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, but he always leaves himself unnamed. And we are told in in the Greek, the Greek construction is a little bit different. The way you have it in your English makes it sound like the mention of the other disciple is a secondary thought. You don't find that in the Greek. It's in the Greek text, it starts off with the verb to emphasize the concept of following. And then you have just a compound, a simple compound subject. In the Greek, it literally reads, um, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. So there's no, no secondary thought here like you have in the English. And then John adds a little editorial note. Now that disciple, that is, he's speaking of himself, now that disciple was known to the high priest. Now some people have speculated that, that perhaps John was a, was a distant relative of the high priest or perhaps that uh, he and his, uh, and his fishing business provided... Uh, fish for the high priest in his household or some other thing. But we don't know why the high priest had personal knowledge of John. 
but there was some sort of relationship, some sort of connection. And so John was able to get, gain entry into the house of the high priest because he was known by, the, by the, the guards outside and by the slave who kept the door. And John was able to go in, but Peter is left outside. Verse 16, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. Notice the detail. Only somebody present would go into this kind of detail. They, they approach. Peter stays outside. John goes in, looks around. What? Lost Peter. Goes back out. Come, you can let him in. He's with me. And so Peter gains access to the high priest's house on the basis of... of uh, of John standing up for him. Now, they're sitting there with the remnant of the temple guard that's there. The Roman cohort is probably left to go back to their quarters. And while they're there, we have the situation of Peter's denial. And when we look at the Scriptures, there seem to be some level of... some level of discrepancy between the various accounts of Peter's denial. First of all, there is a, his first denial is given in John 18:17, and the parallel is Matthew 26:69. Mark 14.6 and Luke 22.56. He denies in relationship to a servant girl. Uh, Matthew identifies her as a certain servant girl. And the second one as another servant girl. There's two servant girls involved. Mark identifies one as a servant girl and the other as a maid. And Luke simply identifies the first as a servant girl and then the second one as another. So what we have here is the first denial to a servant girl. Peter is outside, and this slave, this is the servant girl who keeps the door. She makes sure nobody comes in, has an authorized entrance, and she keeps looking at Peter, and there's something that touches off a little, little bell inside of her head, and she thinks she recognizes him, and she says, you're not also one of his, this man's disciples, are you? And the way she structures that in the Greek would indicate that that she expects a negative answer. She expects him to deny it, but she's pretty sure that he that she recognizes him. So Peter says, she says, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Makes a strong negation. He, no, I'm not one of his disciples. You've got me mistaken. This is in fulfillment, of course, of Jesus' prophecy given earlier in the Gospel of John that... that uh, that back in 1338, that Peter would deny Christ. Now, Peter's denials mentioned in all four Gospels. John has clearly mentioned in John 1338 that Peter would deny Christ three times. So John's not stupid. See, John expects the reader, or anticipates the reader expecting to read three denials. So he's going to give us three denials, but there is a bit of a con- conflict with the other Gospels. Now, one way of handling it is that when Jesus said, you'll deny me three times, he, what he meant was, you'll deny me three times, but that would not exclude four times, five times, six times. The other way is that what John is bringing out is just, he's just emphasizing two of the denials, and the second denial involved a group of people, and so he's giving two different conversations as part of that group interaction. And I think that's probably the clearer explanation. So the first denial is to a servant girl. The second denial is to another servant girl in Matthew 26:71, called a maid in Mark, uh, Mark 14:69, and simply another in Luke 22:58. And this one is not recorded in the Gospel of John. And then there is the third denial, and Matthew says that the bystanders, all this group that's sitting around the fire that they began to look at Peter and say, yeah, yeah, we've seen you. Aren't you, one, you. You sound like a Galilean. You are one of his followers, aren't you? And John sort of divides that up as, as there's this group 
interacting with, um, with Peter, John focuses on two of them. So let's look at the passage. After his first denial, John says, verse 18, Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So now we stop action there. He's denied once. He's standing by the fire with this whole group now, and he's warming himself. And we're going to freeze frame on that and shift to the next scene in verse 19. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus. We're back inside. The high priest here is Annas. He is continuing his interrogation, trying to find something to accuse Jesus of. Trying to find something to hang an accusation on. So he comes along and he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Now, I want you to notice something. The high priest asks him about his disciples and about his teaching. So, what about your followers? See, he's concerned with some kind of, isn't there some kind of revolt going on here? What are you doing with your followers? Where are they? And second, he asks him about his teaching, his didache, his doctrine. So, he's saying, what are you teaching? Jesus ignores the first. He, he ignores the issue of the disciples and he focuses on his content. And three times he emphasizes the first person singular. He says, I have spoken openly. I have taught in synagogues. I spoke nothing in secret. Where are we? It's a cover of darkness. There aren't any witnesses. There's no one else here. There's just a couple of these Roman guards who are going to slap me upside the head in a minute. But... We're doing this in secret, under cover of darkness. This is a conspiracy, but I did everything in the open. I taught openly in the synagogue. I taught in public. So the emphasis is on how open he was in contrast to the cloaked secrecy of this interrogation. Verse 21, he says, Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. In other words, according to your law, I am not supposed to incriminate myself, so why are you trying to get me to incriminate myself? Why don't you find a witness? And so one of the officers thought he was being impertinent and hits him a blow in verse 22. When he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? So it's not in Jesus' manner that he is showing disrespect. He is just reiterating the law, and yet the officer standing there uh, felt that this was disrespect. Jesus points this up in verse 23. He says, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? Challenges his very authorization to hit him. So here we see the picture, the contrast. We see Jesus, who's calm, who's relaxed, who is interacting with the interrogator on the basis of his doctrine, we see the rejection and the hostility of the guard. And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't respond in anger. He responds calmly on the basis of doctrine. See, that's how we're to respond in a crisis. He doesn't lash back. Why did you hit me? He doesn't react in anger. He re- he's thinking. See, as soon as you start reacting in anger, you quit thinking. You start operating on emotion. And at that point, you're out of fellowship. And from that point on, everything's going to be self-destructive. So Jesus continues to think. He is in complete control of the situation. And therefore, he focuses on the real issues. Why did you hit me? I, if I've spoken wrongly, if I said something that was impertinent, then uh, make it clear. But if not, why did you strike me? Now, the point that we see here with what's going on both with the guard and with uh, Peter is the rejection of Christ. For Peter is going to deny him again. This is where the scene shifts. After the episode with Annas, Annas has not found anything, so maybe Caiaphas can do it. So, verse 24, Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, he's still bound. He sent out across the courtyard. The guards take him over to Caiaphas's home. Stop. Action. Scene shift. Verse 25. 
Now Simon Peter standing, warming himself. So the action continues where it left off at the end of verse 18. They, this is the whole group now. They said therefore to him, now this isn't just one person talking, there were probably several that said this. They said therefore to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And then one of the slaves included in this group, one of the slaves of the high priest, also a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. Interesting little note. One who's a relative of Malchus said, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Aren't you the one who just chopped off Malchus's ear? And Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Now, what do we see going on here? On the one hand, we see Jesus' steadfastness, His faithfulness, ready to go to the cross. And on the other hand, we see His rejection. So I want to summarize eight points on the doctrine of rejection. First of all, rejection can be real or perceived. That is, imagined. If you have a tendency towards hypersensitivity then somebody may just say something not meaning anything at all. You might react and think they've somehow insulted you or slighted you or ignored you, and so you perceive rejection. So rejection can be either real or imagined. Point number two, how you handle rejection depends on the doctrine in your soul. How you handle either real or imagined rejection depends on the doctrine in your soul. Point number three, The first option is to react on the basis of your sin nature. To react on the basis of your sin nature and to become self-absorbed with the fact that your feelings have been hurt. Somebody slighted you. Somebody rejected you. Somebody hurt you. And as you nurture those hurt feelings, the result is resentment. As resentment continues, then you begin to do two things. You reject the person and you start to react in anger towards that person. As rejection of that person develops, you uh, harbor feelings of resentment and bitterness. Perhaps this may develop into words of anger, slander, gossip, trying to run down that person, somehow trying to return a hurt for a real or perceived hurt. In other words, a chain reaction begins to develop, and it may be on the basis of something real or something perceived, but you now are engaged in a chain reaction of carnality that becomes more intense as each moment goes by and therefore it becomes more and more destructive. It is the result of a failure to understand and apply any of the problem-solving devices. You've immediately reacted on the sin nature. Instead of confessing sin, getting back in fellowship orienting to grace, therefore dealing with that person in grace, dealing with them on the basis of impersonal love. Now you're trying to solve the problem. You're going to get back at them. You're going to protect yourself. And so you're going to say things or do things that somehow elevate yourself and you're going to try to make yourself feel better at their expense. Now the second option is to respond with the problem-solving devices, primarily the use of grace orientation, which involves humility, and the use of impersonal love. That's exactly what's happening here. John is drawing a contrast for us between Peter's failure to use grace orientation and impersonal love and personal love for God the Father directed toward Christ. And on the other hand, we see Christ's impersonal love towards Peter. Peter at this point is obnoxious. Peter is in rebellion against the Lord. He's rejecting the Lord. He's been operating on arrogance, thinking he can solve all of his problems his own way. And the result is that he sins and fails miserably, and yet the Lord's love for him never changes. See, that is exactly how we as believers are to act towards other believers. That is what the Scripture means by loving one another as Christ loved the church. You know, that command is basically repeated and applied to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's not that your husbands are expected to do anything uh, more than anybody else is, but uh, Paul just makes it a point to remind husbands that you need to pay particular attention to the new commandment that the Lord has given every believer in the church age. And this means that you have to understand impersonal love and operate on it towards your wife. 
and that your personal love, if it's not based on impersonal love, is worthless. So option number two is to respond on the basis of doctrine in the soul and apply grace orientation and impersonal love towards the object that has rejected you and has somehow hurt you. Impersonal love, that's point number four. Point number one was rejection can be real or perceived. Point number two, how you handle rejection depends on the doctrine in your soul. Point number three is option one is to react with the sin nature. Point number four, option number two is to respond with impersonal, with uh, grace orientation and impersonal love. Uh, point number five, impersonal love for all mankind involves numerous attributes. It is sacrificial. It is not self-seeking. It seeks what is best for the object of love. It exercises initiative even when the object is in reaction and in a state of animosity and hostility. It, impersonal love always seeks to um, treat the object in kindness, in gentleness, and in patience. It does not react in anger and uh, with a self, on the basis of self-absorption and self-justification. So, impersonal love involves a number of different attributes, all of which reflect the virtue of the character of Jesus Christ. Point number six, impersonal love always does what is right and responds with the right internal attitude, which then produces the correct external actions or words. So, it begins with a mental attitude orientation towards grace. It is not something that says, oh... Now I'm going to act this way. But it starts with a mental attitude oriented to grace. Point number seven, it lets bygones be bygones. There is true forgiveness. Forgiveness means that you're going to forget what happened and not take it into account in terms of future actions. There's not going to be a harboring of resentment or hostility or anger. There will be not only an absence of mental attitude sins, but the presence of positive, productive action towards the person who, is in, who has rejected you. See, Jesus did not exercise impersonal love towards Peter and just say, okay, Peter, I'm not going to hate you. I'm not going to react to you. I'm not going to be angry with you. It also did something positive. It went to the cross and died for Peter's sins. So impersonal love involves both the absence of mental attitude sins and the presence of positive action that may involve sacrifice and further hurt and rejection from the person who is uh, in antagonism. But it operates on genuine forgiveness. And point number eight, grace orientation never returns evil for evil. Two wrongs never justify. Two wrongs never make anything right. Grace orientation and impersonal love always takes the high ground and always responds in kindness, gentleness, patience. It never responds in anger, hostility, or reaction. And that is the picture that we see because when Jesus walks out, he takes a look at Peter across the courtyard. They have eye contact. Peter realizes what he has done in rejecting and denying the Lord, and the Lord fully understands it. As it were, he sees and his eyes pierce deeply into Peter's soul. Peter knows what he has done, but the Lord's love for Peter never varies, never falters, and never, never changes. This is the picture of our salvation. Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for us, when we were in rejection and in hostility toward Him. He did not save us because we were wonderful, because we were kind, because we were good people, or because He saw that potential in us. Scripture says that we were hostile to God. We were antagonistic to God and thoroughly obnoxious to God because we lacked perfect righteousness. And yet God in His grace did everything necessary to save us. It was based on His character of virtue and not on who and what we are. And therefore, if we are going to apply impersonal love, it begins by having a clear understanding of who God is and what Christ did for us on the cross. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we do thank You for this wonderful portrayal and picture that we have here of Your grace. That You sent Your Son to die on the cross for our sins and that our salvation is not based on who we are or what we do, but it's based on Jesus Christ and who You are and what He did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of church attendance or church membership. It is simply a matter of your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that we might be challenged by the things that we have studied in relationship to your tremendous love for us and that we might in turn exhibit that in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.